1: As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available.
0: You're listening to Beyond Zero Community on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. And my name's James Whitmore. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is created on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and the Gadigal people where this show is broadcast on Radio Skid Row. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. 2020 has been a wild year for lots of reasons. But even though there's a pandemic going on, we can't forget about the climate change that's happening in the background. In late June, weather stations inside the Arctic Circle in Siberia started recording some extraordinary temperatures. 38 degrees Celsius, the hottest ever recorded that far north. At the same time, wildfires were burning across Siberia, and by late June, 1.15 million hectares were on fire. It was a record-breaking heat wave for Russia. And here in Australia, we all remember the black summer when 17 million hectares of forest burned in eastern Australia, including huge areas of World Heritage Forest. 33 people died, 3,000 houses were lost, over a billion animals were killed, and over hundred animals need urgent conservation intervention. We don't often talk about Russia and Australia in the same breath, but these extreme summers led to anger and concern in both countries. In today's episode, I've teamed up with Russian environmental journalist Angelina Davidova. We wanted to have a conversation about the similarities between Russia and Australia when it comes to climate change. We invited two world-leading climate experts to join us – Professor Will Steffen from the Australian National University and the Climate Council, and Dr Alexei Cochrane, the Director of the Climate and Energy Program at WWF Russia. As you'll see, we found the similarities between the two countries are really striking. Not only have we both experienced extreme summers, both countries are dependent on fossil fuel exports, both have governments that are recalcitrant to act on climate change, both nationally and internationally. And we found hope in the increasing awareness among the people. We found there are lots of op- things we can learn from each other and maybe even opportunities to collaborate. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. You're listening to Beyond Zero Community on 3CR Community Radio. All right, so welcome. It's really great to be here in this virtual space with you three. This evening, we're going to be talking about two countries with two climate stories. Australia and Russia may seem like really different countries, but we actually have a lot in common when it comes to climate change. So tonight we're gonna be sharing some stories about those similarities and differences and what we can learn from each other. So let's get right into it. And I wanna ask you both about each country's most recent summers, because they have seen some truly extreme weather. So Alexei, starting with you, can you tell us what has happened over the most recent Russian summer? Uh,
1: Actually, Russia's large country as well as Australia, but maybe Russia is more diverse in different climatic conditions. However, the common thing that climate is more unstable, or as I like to repeat after the uh, famous scientists, in atmosphere science, climate is more nervous, more nervous. So it's not more continental or more marine climate, it's more nervous climate. And everybody now do agree that it's, it's really the case, it's really the case. Yeah, and in some areas, it's very hot uh, periods. Maybe it's not so hot as in Australian scale, but if they have plus 30 in Yakutia, or northern Yakutia, what is uh, uh, Arctic, it's very, very abnormal. In this year, they had even very seldom event of tundra fire. Thunder fire. It's not forest fire. Thunder fire. Yeah, it was so dry and hot. So, and in some other areas, they have as forest fire as usual. What is our big headache in, in, in Russia? Yeah, especially that in many areas no extinguishing is at all. It's very remote areas. Yeah. Speaking about central part, the majority of people are living. Yeah, uh, maybe this year, situation is a bit better because many people, due to COVID, disappear from large megapolises to rural areas. In rural areas, heat wave is more modest, as you know, yeah. So maybe this year is not uh, the best illustration of damage from heat waves or abnormal precipitations, yeah. However, anyway, people feel it, people discuss it, and as I Uh, now uh, far from Moscow, they discuss it very seriously as well. So not only in Moscow, St. Petersburg, but in absolutely rural areas and actually quite poor people discuss and try to do something uh, about uh, not only classic ecology, what is forest fires or pollution of water or air, but they also discuss climate. Sometimes it's very naive phrases, but discuss, it's already a good step forward.
0: Thanks, Alexei. And Will, I just wanted to ask you, can you tell us about Australia, what is now known in Australia as the Black Summer?
2: Yeah, this was extraordinary. <clears throat> and it was dominated by, by bushfires. Uh, and a lot, lot of aspects of the fires were quite remarkable. Uh, they began extremely early in the season in August, September, which is just the end of winter, uh, up in Queensland. Uh, and during the summer, they spread uh, further south, uh, burning enormous areas. So to give you an idea, some of the statistics coming out of these fires were that um, on an average uh, year, uh, of course we do have fires naturally in Australia, in an average year about 2%, 2 2-3% of Eastern Australian forests burned. This year 21% burned. This is extraordinary for anywhere in the world, uh, and certainly for Australia. But the damage was enormous, uh, both from the fires themselves and from the smoke. Uh, between 450 and 500 people lost their lives in the fires, uh, from, the, from directly from the fires and from the smoke. Uh, we estimated that about 3 billion animals uh, were burnt to death uh, because the fires were so intense, so fast moving, uh, that they simply couldn't be controlled. The animals couldn't get out of the way fast enough. Horrific scenes of koalas and kangaroos being burnt to death. Uh, there was no way, even though we have some of the best firefighters in the world, There was no way that they could contain these fires. Uh, They were so big, so intense, generating their own weather, their own tornadoes. Uh, It was quite a remarkable summer. Uh, I was in Canberra during the summer and although Canberra itself wasn't burnt, we uh, suffered a lot of the smoke uh, and on one day in January we had the uh, highest level of air pollution in the world, uh, even beating out some of the Indian cities for that. But it was very nerve-wracking because uh, we were having fires uh, closing in on the city of Canberra. Uh, uh, fires were only about uh, seven or eight kilometers to the south. We could see them from the suburbs, massive flames. Uh, and we were put on notice to evacuate. But when you think, you, you think, well, all right, that's a good idea. But then when you realize there are three roads going out of Canberra, two of those three were already cut by fire. So you have half a million people who potentially would have to get on one road to try to get out. It would have been a disaster. Fortunately, the wind shifted just in time. and. And, and we were saved. But the uh, the, the um, damage was horrendous. I think a lot of people are still suffering mental depression and shock from this. Uh, and uh, and I should just say, obviously the fingerprint of climate change was all over these fires. Leading up to them, uh, we had a couple of years of exceptionally dry weather, particularly in the Southeast, unusually dry. So the forests were were, were, were tinder dry. And then we had an exceptionally hot summer in 2019, 2020. Um, and so climate change was behind both of these uh, meteorological factors, which conditions the forest to burn. Alexei,
0: I wonder if um, you could respond to the human impacts of some of those uh, Siberian fires that you were talking about. Is there the same impact in terms of smoke and pollution and things like that?
1: Uh, sure, smoke is the main problem because smoke damaged huge territories. Uh, mm, direct uh, impact of fire is significant, is significant, but it's quite local. Maybe one a bit more privilege uh, of uh, Siberia in comparison, let's say, California. My son is living in California, I can compare, yes. In California, many buildings or log cabins inside forests, inside, completely inside, surrounded by trees. Yeah, in Siberia, usually all villages or all settlements on some empty hill, maybe artificial due to mosquitoes, mainly due to mosquitoes. It means that between a wall of fire of trees and uh, any house there is at least 20, 30, 50 meters. It's, it's, a, it's, a, bit, it's a bit easier situation. Yes, it's possibility to survive uh, houses. Uh, but smoke is really terrible, especially that uh, mainly in Russia. It's so called ground fires. Ground fires there mainly trees are damaged, but not to death. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, amount of burning materials is not very large, but this burning materials is very wet. Very wet means that it's not full burning with uh, more or less. Uh, Clean air, only hot air, yeah? Uh, But just a lot of smoke, a lot of vapor, a lot of particulars, a lot of uh, um, black carbon, what is really bad, what is really bad. And it cover uh, very large territories, very large territories, and really damaged cities. Last year I was in uh, South Siberia on the distance of about 400 kilometers from real fires. But anyway, uh, they feel this pollution as well. For, for health, it's really bad, yeah. And um, this is uh, something absolutely compatible with situation uh, near the coal power plants. Coal power plants, it's uh, well known that coal power plants working in your city, at least, poor quality coal power plants, uh, decrease your lifetime, potential lifetimes, by about five years. This is in China and the summer uh, cities of Siberia. Forest fires probably reduce your lifetime as well, at least five years, maybe even more.
0: Angelina, I'll hand over to you.
3: Yes, thank you, thank you, James. Um, so uh, both of you have mentioned the uh, impacts of climate change um, on wildfires, on smoke, on other negative uh, events happening in both countries. And I was wondering, what kind of effect does it have on public perception? Uh, Would you say that in case of Australia, will in case of Russia, Alexei, public perception is becoming more uh, stronger towards climate change agenda? Do you think that people are really feeling that climate change is there, it's happening, and uh, something should be done about it? Will, maybe if you can start.
2: Yes, thank you. Uh, That's a very good question and I think we've had a problem in Australia uh, for a long time because we have such a strong fossil fuel industry, Uh, we have some fairly uh, divided politics around these issues, Uh, so people tend to be on, on one side or the other. But what's happened the last few years is that the impacts of climate change have been so drastic, they've been so immediate, They've been in your face, as we say in English. So it's not just the the, the fires. It's been extreme drought in the rural areas for the farmers. It's been the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, which has really hit our tourism industry. So I think there is a shift. And the shift is, is, is happening because people who normally weren't too interested or were even negative about climate change, like farmers, are changing because they can see it. They can feel it. It's happening to them now. So we have what we call really trusted groups in our society like farmers, like the emergency management people, the people who fight the fires, the tourism industry. They're all seeing climate change. It's real and it's happening. And that's starting to shift public opinion. So I think there is a a much stronger public opinion now for action on climate change. Uh, We see it in the polls. We see it in in, uh, pressure on politicians and so on uh, to start moving on climate change.
3: Um, Alexei, you've mentioned that some of this has also been reflected in the case of Russia, and you also said that even common people these days speak about climate change. But what do you say, like in general public and also maybe in political discourse, uh, are there also changes to be seen?
1: Yeah, I see some changes. Uh, and I see uh, how uh, at least two types of dynamic, yeah. First, it's just usual people on the street, on small small cities or even villages in rural areas. So uh, about 15, 20 years ago, people objected existence of climate change or doubted about that. Now they see climate change exists, no doubts. About 10 years ago, many, many people, probably majority, thought that climate change is good or global warming is good for so-called countries, Russia. Now they, recognize completely that it's mainly or dominantly negative main, dominantly negative next uh threshold is reasons so people try to object uh, man-made impact and till now uh older generation in the both in the government or in the street uh, like to uh, insist that it's mainly natural. or it was in the past yes it was in d- dinosaurus time but it doesn't for us, yes. Younger generation or middle age generation, uh, middle age is, I mean, 40 plus minus what is younger generation in government, they are understood all. They clearly uh, now real reasons, so it's good progress. On the other hand, then they speak about forest fires or maybe floods in cities, where some streets are flooded and some, how say, several dozens of cars are lost or some, some fluids. Yeah? They mainly uh, do not blame climate change as a whole. They blame local authorities or local non-responsible business. So they do not link uh, this damage, this risk and growing risk with uh, greenhouse gas emissions as a whole. They mainly uh, link it to just non-responsible business or wrong uh, um, steps of authorities or poor infrastructure, everything except G emissions, yeah. So uh, they, are, they are still not in uh, the way of J G emission reduction. Of course, the better part of society, most educated people, students, uh, they they try to do the best of course but in my estimation it's still small percentage of russian russian society maybe 20% something like that
3: thank you thank you alexei and will uh james i'm passing it back to you
1: all right
0: so something that's quite interesting about both countries is that both place a large emphasis on fossil fuel exports and i'm curious how that's shaped debates around climate change policies in both countries. Well, I might start with you because you know Australia, we, we talk endlessly about coal exports, but something that's really interesting is that as we move to recover our economy after the pandemic, we're looking towards gas. So how is that shaping? How has that shaped um, the conversations around climate change here?
2: Yeah, look, I think that's been an absolutely dominant factor uh, in terms of uh, action, or I should say lack of action on climate change. There have been some good b- books written about uh, how the politics has been skewed or, or poisoned by the big fossil fuel industries. And you're right, for a long time it's been coal. Uh, traditionally, Australia's had mainly coal-fired uh, power stations for electricity. They're being phased out now. But we also have a very big uh, coal export industry. So that's still there. It's still a worry, but as you say, it's dropped a little bit into the background because of the very rapid expansion of the gas industry. And there are two issues here, and that's exporting of LNG or liquefied natural gas, uh, but also domestic gas. And and I think the real flashpoint now is as we come out of COVID-19 and start to revamp our economy, we really have an opportunity. To remake the electricity system. A lot of the coal fired generators are old, they're going to be phased out, renewables are coming on very strongly, Uh, they're they're cost competitive, they're clean, uh, they generate more employment, people really like them, so there's a real push to move strongly. Uh, So now there's a real tension with a lot of state governments and local governments wanting to go renewable, but the federal government wants to support gas and they're pushing a big expansion Of the gas industry even though technology and economics is passing it by. So we have a real tension, a real fight over the next year or two about whether we stop the expansion of the gas industry or or whether we get it shoved down our throat by the industry and the federal government.
0: Alexei, tell us about the situation in Russia and the emphasis on fossil fuel exports and reliance on them.
1: And again, uh, remembering the past situation, maybe 20 or even 30 years ago, uh, in that time uh, authorities and just usual people thought that uh, limitation of amount of oil, gas or coal is the main factor, limitation, and it was uh, calculated that time that there are limited amount of gas and oil underground, maybe for 20 years, maybe for 30 years, but unlimited of coal. Therefore, perception was they are moving from uh, oil and gas to coal. Now situation is absolutely different, opposite, and people yeah. understand that uh, coal, oil, and even gas will be interrupted in use, not due to limitation of uh, itself, but, or maybe limitation by price, but due to climate, due to measures which global society will undertake. It's positive. However, they delayed for quite far future. There are many mentioning of this problem, uh, in strategic document of Russian government or in speeches or in speaking of people, or even scientists, economists. Uh, but they speak at least by 2040 all will be the same at least or maybe 2050 or maybe 2060. So it's not right now, it's not for short term business plan. You know that in extraction of hydrocarbons and even rich coal, uh, it could be very profitable, even if your business plan for five years even five years or 10 years, it's already very good. You extract gas, liquid it, or transport through tube to China or to Europe and all is okay. The same about coal, if you have already good railroad infrastructure, marine infrastructure, yeah. So for short term thinking, all looks good for them, yeah. One more very crucial detail of Russian specific, that coal is private, coal is private. Therefore, government only look on coal, Oh yes, coal is important for social situation in South Siberia or Far East, but it's not our headache as a whole. Gas and oil is a big contributor in federal budget, because Gazprom, Rosneft, or almost all others, largest companies, are half governmental. So dividends of these companies is feeding of state budget. Therefore, they are ready to, and of course, in the given situation, closest friends of our president are top CEO of these companies. It's it's, it's universal behavior in many countries. Yeah, it's nothing unusual. Yes, therefore government take care about oil and and even more about gas. Mm, how to say, mm, advertising or pushing that gas is bridge fuel. Gas is bridge fuel, everything for gas. Yeah, Uh, especially speaking about oil, uh, Russia is not a a number one country around the globe, but speaking about gas, so Russia at least in three largest gas reserves around the globe, so relying on gas completely. And speaking about people, uh, of course in large cities people understand that they have to disappear from coal gas and uh, even from gas but in villages in particular in a rural area where i am now due to covid in already in 4 months yeah uh, people like gas very much because tube gas supply in villages is huge step to well being of people in comparison with fuel wood it's, it's quite clear. Therefore, gas is a symbol of progress, sort of symbol of progress. However, it's not uh, large scale gas use, just for heating of uh, houses in rural areas, mainly in rural or small cities, yeah. Uh, so situation is a bit specific. However, anyway, I see progress. And one more, maybe one more and uh, last detail, which I'd like to say that in all largest companies, Rosneft, Gazprom, SOEC, SOAL, it's Siberian Ural Energy Company or coal companies. They have some, uh, young talent people, or maybe not very young, but extremely well educated people from Moscow, from London, from other uh, educational centers, which know about climate everything absolutely all. Absolutely all. It means that uh, top management have all in absolutely adequate information about climate change and perspectives. However, they play business due to money, only money. Therefore, when they play business for next 10 years, they certainly select coal development. Maybe one more detail that in the past, they tried to economy best coal for best prices. Now we're ready to offer best coal for any price, because they understand, this coal should be sold now, in the next five years, to South Korea, to Japan, to Taiwan, to Vietnam, right now, in 10 years. Because they know that after 10 years, it will be shrinking, even in Asian market.
0: What's uh, the conversation around zero carbon or renewable energy like in Russia?
1: Actually, it's still considered as a myth. Still as a myth.
0: Very interesting.
1: Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, because of how it's possible? What is about airplanes? What's about this, 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 this thing? People know that uh, renewable energy is quite good in good climate conditions, and we have very good uh, development of renewable wind and solar in uh, South Ural, in uh, where we have steep, good wind. Uh, no frost, or frost, but uh, very dry frost, without icing of everything. Yeah, it's quite well in this areas so of Orenburg oblast, uh, Astrakhan oblast, Ulyanovsk oblast, but in particular in Arctic, it, or only very small renewables or just scientific research because it still doesn't work, still so doesn't work. So people. Um, some people, or maybe even majority people, even don't understand what is it zero. How zero could be achieved? Zero is a myth. Yeah. Anyway, they do agree that parity uh, uh, or equal prices for at least solar and uh, uh, coal-generated, uh, coal-generated uh, electricity is coming. They see that. There is already in many countries uh, around the corner in China, almost almost parity of prices around China. In, in Russia, they have very many uh, hydro about quarter, very many nuclear, it's about quarter of electricity, very cheap gas because gas demand in uh, our um, trading partner, I mean, China and Europe is limited. A lot of so-called extra gas for domestic use and prices very low anyway. Yeah, uh, so, but how do people understand that uh, equal prices could be maybe in middle of 30s, maybe in 40s, and then they're ready to discuss zero carbon and everything, but not now.
0: Thank you, Angelina.
3: Uh, thank you, James. Um, Will, you mentioned some of the um, climate policy actions of, of the federal government in Australia, saying that they're not very supportive of the renewable sector. I was wondering what else has been happening with regard to the climate policies in Australia recently. We've all heard that you had the carbon tax a few years ago, Now you don't have it. I mean, this is like all over the books, all over the articles. What else is happening on the federal level and also maybe on the regional and state levels?
2: Yeah, at the federal level, there's still not very much action and it's very slow. Uh, I think there's a sort of very slow recognition that renewables are going to be the future, even at the federal level, but they take measures to protect the fossil fuel industry. coal and gas. It's a different story at the state level, uh, pretty much all over the states now. Um, Certainly where I sit in Canberra, it's a very small uh, jurisdiction called the Australian Capital Territory, but we're already 100% renewable. So uh, we did that in nine years and uh, we actually dropped our electricity prices. So that made everyone happy, including the hard-headed economists in the government who didn't like the idea at first. Now they're really enthusiastic and we've legislated To become totally net zero by 2045. That's transport, industry, we don't have much but we have some, everything. So we're busy uh, now getting gas out of heating and cooking, uh, going to electric, Uh, we're putting in new waste plants to recycle waste and so on. So it's a really progressive place. South Australia is already 50% renewable, that's bigger than us. Uh, And other states, so at, at the state level you're actually seeing Australia move ahead I think quite strongly. But there are tensions because our electricity grid is, in southeastern Australia, ultimately is controlled by the federal government because it crosses many state boundaries. They slow things up by not uh, not improving the connection, the grid, not improving storage and things like this. Uh, And that slows the uptake of renewable energy. So we have this tension in that the federal government is dominated by the fossil fuel industry, by coal and gas and a few states are too, but many states are moving more quickly on renewables b- because people want it, it saves them money, and it's cleaner. So it's got all those things going for it. So I think this is a, a critical five-year period in our, in our move to deal with climate change. Uh, and hopefully, we can uh, p- and tip the whole system toward uh, renewables, even at the federal level.
3: does Australia have a long-term low carbon development strategy on the federal level
2: no they don't uh, they have extremely weak uh, Paris targets so as, as you know all countries Russia Australia uh, are, are signatories to the Paris climate agreement uh, which means that we should do we should be doing what we can to meet um, to go for 1.5 or at least well below two uh, and we had a climate change authority which uh, was a body that had climate scientists on it. Uh, and that was uh, uh, during the progressive era of the Labour government when they did have a carbon price. And they actually said, Australia should be reducing its emissions, we should be cutting them in half by 2030. But then we have the Conservative government dominated by the fossil fuel industry, they wound that back uh, to only half that much. And furthermore, they're going to propose to use uh, credits from the Kyoto period, which are actually illegal. No other country proposes to do that. It's an accounting trick. It's just moving numbers on a book to say, all right, we're going to meet our Paris targets, by, and we won't reduce emissions virtually at all. So, so there's, there's a real uh, problem again at the federal level and international level compared to what's actually going on on the ground.
3: Um, Alexei, can you give us a brief outlook what's the situation like in Russia with the Paris agreement targets and the low carbon development strategy?
1: Uh, actually, formally speaking, Russia still has not any NDC, so Paris target, they have only intended NDC, uh, written five years ago and extremely weak, anecdotically weak, yeah, now uh, Russia is going to uh, to present to climate convention to Paris agreement NDC and it's still under discussion however it is considered as a sort of uh, image-making mechanism on one hand it not as a some practical practical tool yeah and unfortunately pressure of big business and high-carbon business is very high and therefore Mm, they have in government people which would like to see quite ambitious goal, but minority. Uh, in particular, advisor of the president on climate issues certainly would like to have more ambitious goal, one another people in government in particular, however not majority. Majority don't want to spoil relations with big business. And they say, okay, if they insist on very weak NDC, they can do that. They can do that. Uh, Our point I mean WWF is that uh, anyway uh, NDC should be more ambitious than previous than INDC on some uh, at least symbolic but maybe quite significant percentage and currently uh, uh, working draft of NDC is that it's uh, really more ambitious by Three from three to eight percent of ninety ninety percentage looks good, but not for country like Russia because uh, as if INDC anecdotically weak and NDC corrected is a bit better, but just weak. <laughs> is it progress? Yes, it progress, but too weak progress. Yeah. Uh, speaking about. Uh, strategy to 2050, we have working draft of the given strategy. What is a big, uh, strange uh, organism, so said. It's not considered as a real strategy, it's not plan. It's considered as some sort of image-making paper for around the globe. Therefore, you can make the very good wording, very good wording. But uh, behind this scene, and if you read it more carefully, you see that it's absolutely mythological paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In particular, and formally, bureaucratically, authors had to follow so-called policy of social economic development of Russia by the middle of 30s. They have such document. But this document expect uh, GDP growth by 3% in average in uh, usual scenario, is in, how say, in normal scenario and about 2% in uh, worse scenario. In reality, they have significantly smaller. They already have significantly smaller, yeah. So, however, they had to use it and they uh, calculated jumping on emissions due to this percentage. Then discussed it with some economists and some image making. Uh, uh, some of them uh, expressed a paradoxical idea or paradoxical view that if you have something close to the true or which looks like the true, it's bad. It's bad because you're spoiling the truth. But if you have some absolutely mythological and clear for everybody that it will never happen, it's not something bad. It means that due to some in other reasons, lobbying going business or some bureaucratic framework, it calculated, but it just, just anecdote, nothing more. It's not serious life. Therefore, it looks like that if you have strategy based on 3% GDP, yeah? the very poor renewable energy development it's better if you have a real gdp growth maybe one percent with again very poor uh, renewable energy yeah Uh, however i would like to highlight only one thing in our draft strategy this is focused on forests and this is specially designed, and author of this paper and myself as one of advisors and formal advisor to these people, we see that what is goal of the strategy? Demonstrate to the globe that Russia is on board. Number one. Second, let's educate some people in government, some people in business, what is situation of Russian forest? The situation is really dramatic. And all your benefits from energy efficiency could be completely reduced completely eliminated by uh, smaller and smaller absorption of co2 in forests due to clear cuts due to decomposition due to forest fires and they included a lot of very pessimistic information and prognosis about forests in this strategy mm-hmm. this is to educate people in government in business and around the globe to attract attention of uh, people around the globe that russian forests are in trouble. Sure, this trouble is absolutely compatible with trouble in Brazil, in Africa, or in the Indonesia. Our situation is crucially better. But anyway, in scale of uh, country with income per capita like Russia, so more or less developed country, yeah, it's really, really bad. So our strategy is not strategy, it's a sort of educational or advertising uh, paper. It's better than nothing. How they will fight for better and better strategy, undoubtedly.
0: Well, I wonder if you could um, comment on, because Australia is slightly unusual among developed nations in that our GDP still grows at around 2%, um, largely driven by population growth. And the government kind of always uses that as an excuse for that's why our emissions should not come down as fast as other nations. What do you make of that argument?
2: Well, that's, that's as, as we say in Australia, that's a furphy, Um because, because we can get uh, emissions down really fast despite population growth. I gave the example of Canberra, uh, and we are the second fastest uh, growing city in Australia after Melbourne. So we're now growing uh, a little bit faster than Sydney, uh, a little bit faster than Perth and Adelaide, yet we have cut our emissions on 2005 levels by more than 50% in one decade. And it it hasn't hurt our economy at all. We have low unemployment rates and so on. So uh, the story here is that uh, that's an excuse. Uh, We could do it nationally as well. Uh, We could cut our emissions very rapidly and very deeply with economic gain, social gain, uh, and even with uh, population growth. So I don't think um, that that should be uh, an issue at all. We need to get on with the job. I do wanna come a little bit about, about Alexei's last comment because uh, in the late 1990s, I was working on an international research program and I was going to Siberia every summer. And even back so I went to uh, Krasnoyarsk, uh, Yakutsk and Habarovsk in the Far East, and uh, with Russian foresters who are good friends of mine. And so we were going out into the forest at that time. Uh, and even then you could start to see it in the far North, uh, some of the trees were tipping a bit, the trees that were growing on permafrost, because even in the, in the late 1990s, uh, the permafrost was melting. So th- these trees, they, 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 they put their roots out horizontally on top of the permafrost. And when it melts in the summer, that's where they get their nutrients and their water. But the permafrost is melting faster than the trees can grow their roots down. So in the summertime, they start to tip. Russian colleagues call it drunken forest. And, and so it was quite interesting that, and there were fires too and so on. So it's quite interesting that the early warning signs of uh, the vulnerability of Siberia um, was very clear, even in, in, the, in the late 1990s, that's 20 years ago. Uh, and, and so now, of course, as Alexei was saying, we're seeing it uh, as really developing as a big problem. Uh, we saw fires in the forest, but not in the tundra. Now you see fires in the tundra up there. Um, permafrost is is uh, decomposing at faster rates. And for those Australian lis- listeners, uh, they, they can't believe how much carbon is actually in the Siberian permafrost. Uh, it's more than, than what's in the atmosphere, totally. So there is an enormous amount of carbon stored in the far north. So uh, Russia is going to be a key player, not only in its gas and fossil fuel exports, but also in what happens to Russian ecosystems. Just like in terms of marine ecosystems, Australia is really important with the Great Barrier Reef. So we have some, some parallels there, even though ours are in tropical waters and yours are in the Arctic Circle, but both of these enormous ecosystems are uh, incredibly vulnerable and already being really changed dramatically by, by climate change. Angelina, did you want to respond to that?
3: Wow. I mean, I'm actually, I'm really impressed uh, that, Will, that you've been to Russia and you actually, you saw so many places in Siberia. And uh, you also mentioned the permafrost uh, melting, which is also a topic highly discussed within the Russian climate discourse, both in the country and on the international level. Um, This is probably a a very... um, a uh, question with, for which the answer will not be easy, but Alexei, would you say there are any solutions being discussed to permafrost melting in Russia? Is it something we can stop at all, or is it something inevitable and we'll just have to live with this?
1: Actually, if we see scenarios, in particular IPCC scenarios, you could see that independently on any scenario, warming and temperatures by the middle of century is the same. So they can do nothing with the next three decades. However, if they see end of the century, difference is very large. RCP 8.5, what means 4.5 Celsius degrees global warming by the end of the century in comparison with uh, 19th century is really terrible. It's really terrible. In other scenarios, uh, RCP, 4.5, what means 2.5 Celsius degrees. It's not a goal of the Paris Agreement. It's worse than ecological uh, society appeal, but it looks like something really achievable, uh, at least by climatologists. Therefore climatologists and specialists in climate like these scenarios very much. These scenarios provide very large difference from the wars, Very, very large difference. So they can do a lot. It can do a lot. Uh, sure, they cannot uh, stop permafrost melting it a lot, uh, completely, but they can uh, decelerate it significantly. They can keep it in the same uh, maybe speed. So now in different places in Russia, uh, melting, I mean a seasonal summer melting flower uh, depth is from three to 15 centimeters per decade, per decade. So in some places maybe ten centimeters in some places could be sixty centimeters. This difference explains why disasters in one place and troubles like in Narilsk and why situation is more or less good in in other places. Yes, it depends on soil, it depends on ice under the ground and many many things. Yeah. So so a sure solution exists and solution is very simple, very uh, reduction of. Global emissions by at least modest scenarios leading to 2.5, two degrees certainly significantly better. Yeah, and it is about everything, not only about permafrost melting on ground, but also on uh, shelf Arctic marine shelf uh, methane hydrates. It's one more a very painful thing. Scientists really measure uh, large flux of methane. Large flux. They don't know yet. Uh, is it growth of this flux? Uh, is it significant growth or maybe this flux was uh, permanent in the last decades yet? Yeah. However, certainly that methane hydrates uh, volume on the shelf is very large, very large. With warming of uh, uh, water exists in Arctic and even to one or two Celsius degrees of, in water is enough for the composition of methanhydrates. And again, it depends on scenario, depends on scenario. Therefore, they have to use permafrost or methanhydrates or any visible examples, in particular trees, which is not vertical now in summer. Yeah, uh, to demonstrate its real effects, its large effect with a growing effect and effect globally could be really large by the end of the century. But by the end of the century, it can reduce effect by another path of global economy. The Russia is a part. Russian energy is a part, etc., etc., etc. Please go ahead.
0: Um, James, I just wanted to ask you both about um, the business response. And I mean, we know that there are uh, laggards amongst businesses, but are there any companies in either country that are really taking the lead on climate change and what sectors they're in? Will, we might start with you.
2: The one I think that's a little bit disappointing is transport. Uh, we could do a much better job on, on transport. Again, here, here in Canberra, we are putting in facilities for electric vehicles. Uh, we're electrifying our public transport system and so on. Uh, but I think that could be Uh, sped up in in some of the large capital cities as well. Um, I think uh, we don't have the problem that Russians do in terms of heating our our houses. It's mainly cooling our houses is a big issue during summertime. Uh, So again, uh, issues like that, um, electrifying uh, the cooling systems and so on and running them on renewables. Um, In terms of business, uh, it's a real mixed bag. Obviously you got the big fossil fuel players there who are uh, blocking a lot of things. Uh, but you have a lot of innovation uh, underneath that uh, in terms of um, uh, types of buildings, in terms of, uh, in terms of transport, obviously in terms of electricity. Uh, very innovative people in the primary uh, industries in Australia. A lot of farmers, particularly the young farmers, who are completely different from the generation before them, who tend to be climate deniers. The young farmers are, are right on top of the climate change issue, developing new, uh, new crop varieties, new ways of tillage, Uh, the wine industry is is adapting extremely quickly to to climate change so we're getting some some action with the younger generation coming through the primary industries that's positive Uh, but again you've got the big export industries the big fossil fuel industries Uh, they're extremely powerful politically um, and they are the ones that are the blockages Uh, and uh, they have the federal government under their thumb uh, and so that really is the problem that we face Uh, the way i look at it here in australia i think we we can reach a tipping point in the next few years pressures building uh we're seeing a lot more climate impacts the reef the fires and so on uh, but i think importantly now we're seeing economic benefits of switching to renewables of switching to a clean economy that's building pressure throughout the economy uh, and like a lot of the things i work on which are on tipping points in the climate system you can get social tipping points uh, and i think uh, hopefully it, within the next uh, four or five years in Australia, we're going to see a tipping point uh, where, where people just get fed up with a lack of action uh, because they see so many multiple benefits in actually taking, doing the right thing on climate change. So that's my hope for the, for the next few years.
0: Great. Alexei, I was wondering what the situation is in Russia. Are there innovators in the economy that are really taking steps to, you know, address climate change?
1: Uh, yes, it's not in large scale, but exists. And uh, speaking strategically, so uh, I mean, no, 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 speaking uh, nationally, speaking nationally, on the next maybe 15 years, there are two main directions. One is energy efficiency, in different types in buildings, in transport, in, in industry, and forests. So, two columns. Next, yeah, maybe after 15 years, it will be renewable energy. I hope, and wide uh, range of measures to shift Russian economy from raw materials like uh, oil, gas, coal, aluminium, steel to more high technology products. However, uh, but how speaking about uh, visible and current uh, achievements, uh, electricity in transport. Electricity everywhere is very visible, yeah. Uh, It was not possible to imagine that somebody in Moscow area will heat house by electricity. It could be extremely expensive. But now there is uh, two things. Firstly, almost passive buildings, very good thermal isolation. And secondly, more flexible uh, policy of government, uh, which have different tariff, it's possible uh, in night tariff could be three, four times less than peak tariff in the middle of the day. Yeah, it's good for loading of power plants. Yes, and therefore for efficiency of electricity generation So, so the both. Therefore, such flexible tariff uh, is really contribute to efficiency of generation and efficiency of consumption. Sumption. So it's, it's good. Yeah, uh, another thing is electric transport or gas transport. Government and Gazprom, of course, promote gas transport as much as possible. Uh, I don't think that it could be very large, but in some one or another areas it could be large due to uh, due to economic reasons first of all and uh, clean air, of course. Gazprom or local branch of Gazprom in some cities even ready to uh, supply. Uh, equipment for car free of charge of course it will be zero percentage uh, um, le- rent of this equipment not gift from the government to a person yes but anyway it will be free yeah <laughs> and price of gas in comparison with petrol is about two times cheaper so a real perspective uh, electricity is more profitable in transportation it's what more or less good not only in Moscow in larger cities. So electric uh, buses, one direction. Uh, And of course, they see on street electric bicycles, small and large, uh, and people of different generation, not only young generation use it. So it's very, very visible. Sure, it's maybe electric bicycles is very small contribution in GHG emissions, but very large contribution perception of problem in mind of people. Yeah, very visible. Yeah, uh, sure. The traffic police would like to uh, introduce a lot of restrictions because electric bicycles is already a sort of transport. But rules for them is so-called very flexible, very, very, uh, absolutely. How to say? how to say, um, out of any rules, they can cross any street in any direction, <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, this already a local problem could be so, so, uh, sorted out, of course. However, progress is, is not bad. Progress is not bad. Houses, transport, even industry production. However, it's bad uh, is that uh, trend is too slow. It's certainly possible to make it trend three times faster. However, uh, business conditions, or some inertia, or even maybe some corruption somewhere, is decelerators, and there we have trend, not bad trend, but we certainly see that it could be three times more. Thanks,
0: Alexei. Um, Angelina, we probably have time for one last question.
3: Right, uh, thank you, James. Well, hearing you both speak, I see a lot of similarities between the two countries. And I believe that was also one of the reasons why we decided to uh, have the stock and uh, also maybe show the audiences in both countries that even um, another large country at the other end of the globe can have completely similar climate issues, problems with fossil fuel um, lobby, issues with federal governance, issues with public perception, negative consequences of climate change. So my question is, uh, after you heard each other speak, what do you think of any kind of cooperation between the two countries, which can be done on any level, scientific level, civil society level, other levels you can think of? What comes to your mind, uh, Will?
2: Well, I think one thing that we share is, is the gas issue. Uh, and I think perhaps we can, uh, Learn a bit from Russia where, where it's been a big uh, industry for a long time uh, and a difficult one to deal with. I know Alexei's been, been, been talking about uh, how you, know, you can get free gas equipment for your car. Big export industry when I was living in Sweden, a big issue was the Russian pipeline coming down the Baltic Sea uh, to ship gas into Europe. Very controversial issue in Sweden. So, so we know how the big fossil fuel industries drive things. So um, we have exactly the same issue in Australia now with the real push for the gas industry. So I think those of us who are working in the climate change space, if we can share some knowledge about how we try to deal with this uh, big push for fossil fuels, how do we try to turn this around, undermine and so on, that would be extremely useful. I think also in extreme events that are hitting our countries uh, in terms of extreme heat, uh, be it the Arctic or or, uh, down here in Australia, uh, adaptation measures may be also something we can talk about. But I think there is a lot we, we can share in terms of dealing with both the impacts of climate change and trying to get emissions down.
1: Alexei? Yeah. I also see that we have many beneficial points or even tracks uh, <coughs> that we cooperate just with Australia. Because you know that uh, Russians like to compare Russia with Europe, usually Russians are outsiders. They are disappointed. They try to explain European behavior by absence of energy sources, by some special mentality, many reasons. So a comparison and use of European experience is not the best to push Russian perception, Russian behavior. The same about China. China is another, another style of life, another discipline is another world. United States, oh, United States is also terrible. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. <laughs> However, Australia looks like very good example because also a lot of energy resources. Yeah, um, and uh, especially then they cooperate and jointly communicate about perception of people and perception of small and middle-sized business. Yeah, large business, the oligarchs, they have a lot of money. They more take care uh, about. Mm, good relations with presidents and politicians but small and middle-sized business crucially more flexible and uh, they have not advisors which are brilliant at climate change they have nobody they work themselves yeah therefore i see at least two areas cooperation on level of public perception in communication and ngos and uh, small and middle-sized business first of all most progressive one great Thank you.
3: James
0: yeah that's so interesting and thank you so much for both of you for joining us this evening it's been really fascinating to hear about the similarities and differences and the things that we can learn from each other so thank you so much for joining us this evening that was Angelina Davidova Dr Alexei Cochran and Professor Will Steffen talking about the similarities in the climate stories between Russia and Australia I hope you found that conversation as enlightening and stimulating, as I did. If you're feeling motivated to take action, there's an opportunity coming up on September 25, a global day of action organized by Fridays for Future. In Australia, the campaign is calling for no public funds for gas, which is really important as the government has identified gas as a major part of our recovery from the pandemic. To find out more information, go to schoolstrikeforclimate.com. You've been listening to Beyond Zero Community on Radio 3CR. To find out more or to listen to this program again, go to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond zero. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
1: Fitzroy
3: Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? Or
0: stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.